Romans chapter 6 tonight. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles here in just a moment with Bibles. Just wave to them and they'll put a Bible into your hand. It'll be helpful for you to follow along tonight to have a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. Two verses to begin our evening. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then Paul responds to the question that he poses with a certainly not complete with exclamation point. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for a chance again to open up your word. And we do it all alone and we do it individually all through the week. And how wonderful it is to come together at times like this and to partake of a shared meal, to have something like this in common with one another. And we thank you for the blessing of the body of Christ and the sweetness of this kind of time. We ask that you meet with us now through your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In our current study of the book of Jeremiah on Sunday nights, the book of Jeremiah, of course, contains a very, very strong call to backslidden Judah to repent of their sins and to returning uh, to obeying God's commandments, obeying his plan uh, for their lives and for them as a people. But as we've seen in just three weeks of studying the book of Jeremiah, that the people are really determined not to repent, and they will, as a result, spend 40 years ignoring God's call uh, to repent, and ultimately they end up completely destroyed and taken captive by the very enemies that uh, God was warning them would take them captive if they did not turn to Him, enslaved by her enemies. But I think in all of this, as I've been studying this book of Jeremiah, and this theme of Romans chapter 6 has been tumbling around in my heart for a while, and just trying to figure out when does the Lord want it uh, to be taught. But I think, you know, as we're looking at Jeremiah on the Sunday night, my mind goes to the Christian who is in this room and sitting under the teaching of the book of Jeremiah, who thinks, you know, I'm not where I should be with God. And, but I'm not like the people of Jeremiah, the children, uh, or the children of Judah, rather. Uh, they were determined to stay addicted to their sins. And where a person would say, that's what they were, but that's not what I am. I want my life to be free from the bondage of sin. But what happens with me is I continually lose the struggle. And if the fact be made known, I am a very defeated, sin-dominated uh, Christian. And that's the kind of Christian life I live, but I don't want to live it. And I think that uh, perhaps most Christians have a little bit of a taste of that, at least in the course of our, of our Christian lives, and we know something about it at one time or another. I remember when I was a very, very new Christian, I found out about a guy by the name of Alan Redpath, and he had a series of books that he had written, and he was alive at that time 
um, was once the preacher at Moody Bible Church in uh, Chicago, a very prominent kind of pastorate. And I remember as a new Christian reading all of the books that Alan Redpath wrote, and I remember especially reading one that was entitled Victorious Christian Living, and it was a series of studies in the book of Joshua. And, uh, and though the content of the book is faded over, uh, you know, 35 years or whatever it's been, 40 years, uh, the title has always stuck with me, and it has through uh, all of this time. And what it does is the Lord brings it to my remembrance is it reminds me of the fact that the Christian life is one in which I am not only saved and forgiven by God, but I also have been given the privilege of being able to live a victorious Christian life, a life of victory over the world, over the flesh, over the devil, and that's a you know, mighty fearsome uh, trinity that unites against me in my walk with the Lord and in yours as well. And Paul does something very, very wonderful, I think, for us in uh, Romans chapter 6 in that he brings out four keys to the victorious Christian life. And these things have helped me through the years, and uh, I trust they might be helpful to you as well. And the four keys are encapsulated in four simple words within the chapter. And the first word is the word know, or a variation of it, found in verse 3, again in verse 6, and again in verse 9. And this word has to do with our thinking related to the victorious Christian life. Then there is this word uh, called, that Paul uses in verse 11, the word reckon, and this has to do with our thinking and with our will. The third word is found in verses 13 and 14, the word uh, present, this has to do with our actions, and then the word slave, and we'll look at it most specifically in verse 22, but the word or variation of it is found all the way through verses 15 to 23. This again has to do with our actions. And so we begin with the word know. And, and this, and let me just say by way a further introduction related to this, we, um, this kind of what Paul is laying out here in terms of the victorious Christian life, it doesn't just have to do with, um, you know, the sex, drugs, rock and roll kind of sins that we all think of and immediately think, yes, that's a sin, that's something far away from the victorious Christian life. Um, a lack of discipline is a very significant, am I getting something in my eye right there? Oh, there we go, got the phone. All right, he was just had it and turned and it, was, and it was getting me. I'm easily distracted. And then when I'm off my meds, I'm a mess. So anyway, I'm not putting anyone down, so forgive me for that. But, but sometimes, you know, you've got these sins that we all look like and we say, well, those are, are awful sins and so forth. But I think about discipline. I've been reading, you know, you see these articles now and all where people now they're giving psychological names to the addiction to technology, the addiction to the internet, uh, the addiction to phones. Um, recent articles somebody sent to me, I've already seen a number of them where the younger generation would, if they were given a choice of giving up either their phone or sex, they would give up sex. That's uh, you know, it was easier when I was a child and a young man, there weren't any phones, and so we just had to deal with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But you've got this, these things that come in that are socially acceptable, but they are bondage. 
They put us into bondage. They have control of our lives. And what Paul lays out here is just as effective and fruitful as these things that are kind of known sins and obvious uh, sins. So the first no that he kind of refers to as he heads into verse 3 there is a reference back to verses 1 and 2. And what Paul is saying in verses 1 and 2 essentially is, and the Holy Spirit is making, and the, the point of the entire chapter is found in those two verses, and it's an important one. And it goes basically something like this, that the salvation God has provided to us because of our faith in Jesus that it has not only provided us with the grace for the complete forgiveness of our sins, but grace, uh, the grace in the Christian life isn't just limited to the realm of forgiveness, but grace is also given to us as Christians in the form of the grace to live a life free from the power of sin. And Paul is saying for us as Christians, we are to know that. That is something that we are to absolutely know, every one of us is Christians. He makes this very powerful statement in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 20. You might read there. He said, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And then notice he went on to further declare in verse 21, so that sin so that sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he's communicating that as Christians, we are not to think of grace solely in terms of the forgiveness of sins as wonderful as that is, but we are also to understand that God's grace in our life is also expressed in giving us the power to live a life free from the power of sin. And I think this is a very important thing to know in our lives as Christians because I would venture to guess that the average Christian today, when we think about God's grace, the only thing that comes to our mind is God's patience with us and His forgiveness in our lives. And it rarely is there a thought that God's grace is equally expressed in our lives by giving us the power to live a sanctified life, to live a holy, victorious Christian life. And so, Paul is telling us that the Christian life that's described in verse 1, one in which a Christian thinks kind of the following, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, I'm on my way to heaven, but I have no real concern for changing my ways or changing my lifestyle or repenting of my sin. I have no interest in a victorious Christian life. I have no interest in a changed life. And, uh, and, and when a person has that kind of an attitude concerning Christianity, that it's merely this fire uh, insurance and, and it's just something that I get saved, but I continue to be able to, you know, dominate my life, Paul is saying that's not Christianity at all, that it is a complete misunderstanding of Christianity and a complete mis misunderstanding, amazingly enough, of God's grace. And if a Christian is living a life of deliberate habitual sin, 
Paul wants us to know and the Romans to know that this is unacceptable. It is not the Christian life that God intends for us. And it's important for us to realize that Jesus did not come into this world, live here and minister for 33 and a half years, die that death upon the cross, rise again from the dead, and then ultimately to ascend into heaven after having paid the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins in order to provide us with that kind of Christianity. That's not the Christianity that He sacrificed His life to provide to us, and that is our first no. And it is the first key to experiencing the victorious Christian life, knowing what it isn't. That then sets up the second no of verse 3. Read with me in your hearts if you would. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? And therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, and we have, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The second thing that Paul wants us to know is that as Christians, we should walk in the newness of life. He speaks of that at the end of uh, verse 4 there. To know that we are no longer the same person that we were before we became a Christian. That person does not exist any longer. It do, he does not need to exist any longer. We are no longer... One nanosecond after inviting Christ into our lives, we are no longer the person that we once were. And it's important that we know that and to be able to say that. Maybe you might repeat that after me. I am not the same person I was before I became a Christian. And that's the truth about us. And it's important to be able to know it and to say it. Paul speaks of this when he writes to the church at Corinth, and he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. Why is that so? Why are we no longer the person that we once were? It's because a tremendous and priceless miracle occurred when we became Christians, the very resurrected and victorious over death and sin and hell and the devil, that Jesus now lives inside of us by the Holy Spirit. That God, God now lives inside of us as a result of that spiritual birth. And the Holy Spirit has brought into our lives a new nature, a new nature that loves God and wants to live for God, and wants to obey God every bit as much as our old flesh and our old fallen nature from Adam loves sin and wants to follow sin. And Paul described the miracle in this way to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to do and to will of his, uh, uh, to do and to will for his good pleasure. 
God is inside of us by His Holy Spirit. And because He is inside of us, He has brought a completely new nature into our lives. And He has provided us in this new nature, not only with the desire to live a new life, but now also with the power to live a new life. And just as God has provided us with a perfect salvation, He has also provided us with all that we need to live a holy life. Christianity is not being forgiven by God and then cursed to live the rest of our days between that moment in heaven, living in the same bondage to our old life and our old sin as ever we did. That is not the fullness of the the victory that Jesus has not only won but provided uh, to us. That is a very weak and impartial understanding of Christianity. This brings us to our no number three, which is found uh, in verses 6 through uh, 10. Notice in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and I want you to notice that phrase, done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God." Now, the translation there, and and let me read once again verse 6, if you'd read with me. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that is Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And that phrase, done away with, in verse 6, is the Greek word uh, katargo, And it literally means rendered inoperative. In other words, while we will always have this old nature in this life that wants to draw us into sin, the old Adam nature, its power, Paul is telling us, because of the spiritual birth, its power over us has been rendered inoperative. In other words, we do not have to obey our old sin nature. And he's not saying that as Christians we're now immune to sin, we're immune to temptation, it doesn't phase us anymore, it isn't in a, a powerful full pull in our life. He's not saying anything of the sort. He knows that we will experience that all the way until the day that we one day graduate uh, into heaven. But what he's saying is that we now have an upward pull in our lives toward holiness that is greater than the downward pull of sin and the old sin nature. A classic illustration, and I use it uh, repeatedly, it's kind of like being on a jet airplane. When that jet plane takes off as it goes down the runway and it lifts up and begins the flight, gravity remains in full force. 
and all of its power is still being uh, exercised in, uh, in that plane. But a greater power now, the greater power of the jet engine now allows that jet to defy the gravity, and so it is with the power of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Sin still wants to pull us down into bondage, but the Holy Spirit provides us with the power to live a holy life that is even greater, and that's the emphasis. The other pull is strong, but the Holy Spirit brings into our life a pull to live a holy life, a power to do so that is even greater than the power that sin once had upon us. And it is because of the pull of that Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that the old man, the old nature, the old pull has been rendered inoperative. It is not out of business. It has not been made extinct yet, but it has been rendered inoperative by a greater power. And Paul says every Christian is to know this if we are to experience the victorious Christian life. Well, that then brings us to this key word, second word, reckon. And you notice it in verse 11, and I'll read verse 11 and 12 now. Likewise, you also. So we got the no down. Now we need to move to reckon. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, because of this, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. That word reckon is a very, very important word. And it literally means there in verse 11, to accept as a fact. In other words, Paul is saying that I am to accept these truths, these no's that we've just read about, I am to accept those things as facts about myself as a Christian in order to experience the victorious Christian life. Number one, that we are never to settle for the Christian life that is described in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. We are never to settle for a Christian life that is marked by deliberate or habitual sin. Number two, no, we are no longer the same person that we were before we became a Christian. We are, after we've become a Christian, we are a new creation. And then number three, we are to know that we no longer need to obey our old sin nature. We don't need to be a slave to sin because it has been rendered inoperative by the person and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We might say because we are under new management, We were once under the management of our flesh, of our old nature. It's the only management that we ever knew. But when we gave our life to Christ, we came under new management, the management of the Holy Spirit. Now, in all of this, the word reckon, uh, with the use of that word, the Holy Spirit takes all of this a step further. And here's part of what Paul is doing here. And you know, stay with me. I'm not doubting that you, you are. But the reasoning of the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans is so tight it can hold water. I mean, it is, we're scratching the surface, by the way, as many of you know as we head through this. But 
we want to focus on what we're focusing on. And what Paul is declaring here in the use of this word reckon is that a person can possess an entire world of knowledge and information on anything and then never allow that to affect their thinking or to reckon something to actually be true about my life. And to reckon something to be true means that I'm then going to take those things now that I know and to actively apply them to my thinking. I'm going to put these things into action in my life. Here's an example of how it works. Most of us will recognize it. So here we are going along as Christians, and our old nature, our old man, our flesh, is then being tempted to be drawn into sin. It's tempting me toward that sin. And it tells me that I'm as powerless to resist that sin as ever I was. Nobody shout out, nobody say amen, nobody raise a hand. But how many of you have ever had the flesh tell you in a moment of temptation that you are as powerless before that temptation today as a Christian as ever you were before you became a Christian? That's why you can't believe the tempter. All he ever does is lie. But here is that temptation that comes in, that statement of the flesh. And at that critical moment, I am to stop and remind myself that this is no longer the truth about me, but that I am now a redeemed and liberated person so that I can talk to my old man and I can tell my old man, I no longer have to obey you. You have been rendered inoperative in my life by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. I am under new management, the management of the Holy Spirit. You can't control me any longer. I reckon myself dead to you. And when we do that, we put that bad boy in his place. We put the flesh in the old man right where he needs to be. And there's nothing wrong in the face of temptation to speak to the flesh. The devil is using the flesh, but to speak to our own flesh and to say, I reckon myself dead to you. And then to do so with the complete confidence that this is now the truth about me as a Christian. Now, I don't know about you, but I do know about you, because the Bible says we're all pretty much alike, except uh, we comb our hair differently. But I mean, in the, intrinsically, we're all about the same. But all of us, every single day, every one of us is involved in a, a day-long conversation with ourselves. And oftentimes, that will look what she just did. Well, look at what that guy's doing now. I think I'll give him a little more distance on the freeway. We got a conversation going on all day long inside of our heads. In fact, the only reason we get interrupted from that conversation is when somebody else talks to us, which is a grace in its own self. If you're like me, oh good, an interruption. I was getting bored. 62 years of this conversation. We haven't got it worked out yet. Thank you for interrupting me. Yes, I think the 49ers stink. Next subject. But we've got this conversation going on, and oftentimes it's between the old man and the new man. 
And this victorious Christian life begins in our lives by winning the conversation that goes on inside of our heads and that goes on in the realm of our will. And, and, and the, this Christian life, this victorious Christian life begins with winning that conversation. And we win that argument and that conversation like all conversations and debates with the facts. And Paul tells us that the fact is that we do not have to obey our old nature anymore. We now possess the power to live for God and to obey Him. And that great truth is to dominate my thinking in the face of temptation because it is the truth about my life as a Christian. Uh, logizimo, uh, lo, let me get it right here, logiz. Oh my, which is the Greek word for that uh, reckon there, to reckon uh, something. Uh, that Greek word there, it means to reckon, to count, to compute, to calculate. It's actually an accounting term. If I uh, logizomai, or I reckon that my bank book and account has $25 in it, then it has $25 in it. Uh, logizomai, like all accounting, it deals with facts. This is not philosophy. This is dealing with facts. In other words, Paul is saying that if God has told me that I have this ability in my spiritual bank account, then I can be sure that it is there, and I can reckon it so, I can accept it as a fact, act upon it, and then discover it to be true. Again, this goes way beyond knowing something to be true. It is to take the one step further and apply it to my thinking. And that is critical because all these battles are won or lost in the realm of the mind and the will long before they're ever won or lost in the realm of our actions. Now, Bob Dylan got all of this perfectly right in his song, going to change my way of thinking. And uh, I remember I, was a, really got, I got going with the Lord in 1980, and Dylan had released Slow Train Coming in uh, late the year before. And so it was very uh, foundational album for me early in my Christian life. And he's driving home this very same point in one of his songs. The lyrics go like this. <laughs> So you see what Dylan is saying. <laughs> now he said it like this. Going to change my way of thinking, make myself a different set of rules. Going to change my way of thinking, going to make myself a different set of rules. Going to put my good foot forward and stop being influenced by fools. And sometimes the greatest fool we'll ever meet each and every day will be ourselves and our old nature. And we need to set him straight every single day, and it is with a changed thinking, not only knowing it, but now applying what I know to the temptations and, uh, of my life. The third word that we want to look at here is the word present, and it's uh, used twice in verses uh, uh, 13, but we'll read 13 and 14. Verse 13, and do not present your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, 
and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. I mean, you can feel it through the pen of Paul. For you are not under law, but under grace. Now, we are then, he tells us, to present our members, and the idea is every part of our body to God for His plan and His purposes for our lives. The word present in the Greek language, it means to offer, it means to hand over, it carries with it the idea of surrender. And so this speaks of the surrender of our will for our lives, that we are to present our members, every part of our bodies, to God. God, here is my life. It is completely yours, and I want it to be used for your plan, your purposes for my, my life. I want them to be used for righteousness. I want you to use my life for righteousness as fully as I once used the members of my body for sin. And that's a prayer that God will always answer. And it is to begin the day or in a moment of temptation or after a tough morning or a discussion with somebody in our life and to just say it when any time we want to do it, Lord, I surrender my life. I surrender my hands, my feet, my eyes, my ears, my mind. I surrender my strength, my health. I surrender all of it to you now to be used for your holy purposes. And that's a desire that he will always meet us at that point, and he will uh, honor that. And it's a great way to begin every day. I think about Exodus chapter 29 in the Old Testament when they would anoint the high priest and also uh, all of the priests, and an animal sacrifice would be offered. This was only related to the priests. And then they would take some of the blood, and they would put it on the tip of the right ear, of the priest, and then on the thumb of their right hand, and then on the big toe of their right foot, and then they would sprinkle the blood all around the altar. And what it communicated and expressed on the part, uh, on God's desire for the priest, but also the priest's desire from God, it communicated the desire of the priest that all of his hearing, and that is all of his thinking, all of his doing, his right hand, his right foot, all of his directions in life, that all of it would be dominated uh, by God, and it communicated that desire on the part of the priest. And this is what Paul is calling us to do here, to essentially come to a point where we surrender our lives to God for his purposes. And then we come finally to this word servant or this word slave. And it's used in one form or another all the way from verses 15 through, uh, you know, 23. But I want us to look just at one specific verse in verse 22 because it carries the meaning for what we're looking at tonight. Notice verse 22. But now, having been set free from sin, that's past tense. That's not something we're working on. That's not something we're trying to earn from God. That's not something we're going to get one day. That's something that's ours now. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. And Paul is telling us a key part to the victorious Christian life 
is to have a relationship with God in, yes, He is my heavenly Father, yes, He is my best friend in all of life, but He is also my sovereign. He is my King. He is my Lord, and I am His servant. So when he talks about becoming a slave of God, this is the degree to which we are to surrender our lives to God's will and His purpose for our lives. Now, people get very alarmed over the strength of the word, uh, slave and so forth, but the fact of the matter is that the word needs to be this strong because what it's communicating is strong. The fact of the matter is that in this world, Every single one of us sitting in this room, and yes, I mean you and I mean me, every single one of us is either going to be a slave of sin or we're going to be a slave of God, period. There are no other choices. And the reason that that's true is every single one of us intrinsically has been made to worship. We are made to worship, and worship we will, and worship we do. Every single atheist in this world worships all day, every day. Everybody worships. The only thing that gets defined or chosen is who and what we worship. And there's only two things to worship in all of the universe, and that is God, the Creator, or His creation, and, and, which is idolatry. There is only the worship of God, or everything else is idolatry and it is sin. I like to refer to this thing that he's talking about in becoming slaves to God. I like to refer to that as the settling the issue of Jesus' lordship in our life. The importance of, for me and you of settling the issue of Jesus' lordship in our lives. And why is that important? Because many, many people are eager to accept Jesus as their Savior, as a Savior from sin and from hell and from death and the consequences of sin, but they never ever come to a place of making Him the Lord of their lives. And there's a lot of problems with that, but one big problem with that kind of person and that kind of Christianity is that person will never ever in a thousand lifetimes ever experience freedom from sin. The only way to escape from becoming a slave of sin in this world is to become a slave of God. And Jesus put it this way when He declared to the disciples, He said to them, if anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself Take the big I, me, my off the throne. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. One of the great things about Jesus is they didn't like mumble, this is going to be hard, they're not going to like it, and so I'll just you know, say it in Aramaic and they won't understand it. He's very upfront about what is required in order to walk with him and follow him. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. And many, many Christians, and I'm not trying to get us on a pride trip of looking, yeah, I can tell you right here, I'm texting him right now, you know, get in on the video cast. But just 
because we know from our own lives and maybe even within this room itself. But many Christians simply do not take this seriously. It's as if Jesus said it and he was cracking a joke or that he wasn't serious about it or that we're free to just disregard commandments that he gave willy-nilly as, as Christians and they never take it seriously and they then explain away the level of commitment that Jesus is calling all of us to as Christians, but to do so will always result in keeping me in the bondage of sin. And here's what Paul describes this becoming a slave to the Lord in order to be freed from the slavery of sin. He encapsulated it very beautifully in Galatians 2.20 where he declared, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the Apostle Paul didn't just think that that was a Christianity for apostles or just a Christianity for himself. He called on every Christian to do so. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, and therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are our God's. And the ironic thing about becoming a slave to God is that it results in freedom, and it's the only place that it does, and it's the only place I can become free. Jesus declared uh, to the Jews who believed in him, John 8, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He then went on to speak to them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Nobody's dabbling in sin. Nobody's playing with sin. It, it be, we become a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. And Jesus said, Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And so how can slavery to God result in a life of freedom? Because we were created to be his slave. We were created to be his servant. We were created to know him, yes, as father, to know him, yes, as friend, but to know him as sovereign and to know him as king. It is when we are his servant and recognize ourselves to be in the place I had an eighth grade math teacher named Mr. Wheeler. All of you who are teachers just know we're going to remember your names. But I had them, and I say that affectionately. I loved my teachers, by the way. Well, there were two of them I did. I said, okay. But proportionately, it was very, very good. But Mr. Wheeler set down the law in one of the first, first day or the second day of eighth grade math at Ridgeview Junior High School. Somebody acted up in the class and was going to compete with him for the authority of that classroom. 
And he got over and he got in that kid's face, and then he informed the entire classroom that he is essentially the sovereign and the king of that classroom. And he said, when I tell you to jump, I want you to ask how high on the way up. I don't remember anything I learned for the, uh, the rest of the year in that classroom. I know I learned a lot, but I walked away with that life lesson. And that's the way that it is with God. That's the relationship. It's the one that sets us free. Whatever you have said in this book, God, whatever you have commanded of me, this is not something that I sift through and I wonder whether I'm going to obey or not and I'm going to self-define my own Christianity. No, if you said this, I'm going to ask you how high on the way up. And that's what Christianity is intended to be in our lives. And that's what obedience is supposed to look like in our lives as Christians. And, and there is freedom in it because we're living life as we were intended to, as servants of the true and the living God. Again, Dylan got all of this right in his other song, and I'm going to be selling his album after the service, by the way, out in the fellowship hall. And, and many of you remember it, got to serve somebody on that same album. He said, <laughs> he said, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. Now, you talk about clarity, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And he got it right. Because there are really only those two choices, light and dark, God or the devil. And, and uh, the, that album, again, made some of these truths so fundamental for me uh, in, in my life. There must come a point in our lives where we settle the issue of Jesus' lordship in our lives, where he is no longer just merely our Savior, as wonderful as that is, but he is my Lord, he is my master, he is my king. If he says it, then I do it immediately, as fully as a slave would have done to any king or sovereign in that ancient world. That is to be the degree of our commitment to him and to his uh, commandments. He is the master and I am the slave. And that's the place that he's to be given in our lives because he's worthy of it but also because there is no victorious Christian life found in anything short of that commitment. And so maybe some of us this evening must settle that issue of his lordship and to get off of the throne of our own lives, if I'm sitting on it, and give it over to him. So allow me to recap four key words, know, and these are the things we're to know. Jesus did not come into this world in his incarnation, live the life that he lived, died on that cross, buried, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven after that in order to provide us with the Christianity that's described in verses 1 and 2. No, number two, that we're no longer the same person we were before we became a Christian. We are a new creation. We are a, 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 a under new management. Number three, no. While we don't, we'll always have this old nature in this life that wants us to draw us into sin. Its power has been rendered inoperative in our lives. We do not have to obey the old sin nature. Then concerning reckon, 
We are now to accept these things as facts in the face of temptation. Again, this goes beyond knowing and goes into uh, taking one step further and applying it to our minds and applying that truth to my thinking in the times of temptation. And then the word present speaks of the surrender of our will, uh, the will for our lives to Him. We present all of our members, our entire body to Him for His purposes. And then number four, the word slave or serve. The importance of settling the issue of Jesus' lordship in our lives. He is not merely my Savior, but this was a deal in which He was calling me to actually make Him the Lord of my life as well, and that I am his servant as a result. And so these things have been so helpful to me in the face of temptation, and perhaps they make a light or two go on related to our lives this evening. Now, something happens here, interestingly, in Romans chapter 6, because Paul lays all of this out in chapter 6, and in essence, what his listeners try and do in chapter 7 is that they try to roll up their sleeves and do this, accomplish this. All right, Paul said it, the pastor said it. Now in my own strength, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to huff and puff and try to blow this house down and now I'm going to walk in this victory in, in my own strength. It's, it's there for me. And so, they be, so in Romans chapter 7, you have the Christian now who's going to try and accomplish that in his own strength. And you notice how well he did if you just turn a page over to verse 24. And he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Everything that I've described here, you and I have no more chance of accomplishing this for an hour in our life, much life, less a lifetime. It has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul then goes on, and we're going to take you right past Romans chapter 7 into chapter 8, which is all about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus promised that he would give us, if we desired, in what is known as the baptism with the Holy Spirit, just for the asking, the power to be a witness to him, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Jesus declared that if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so if your Christian life tonight is one that's inconsistent or completely defeated, all of these truths are vital to mark our thinking, to mark our will, to mark our actions and our doings, but to realize we can only do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you have never been baptized with the Holy Spirit, as we partake of the Lord's Supper tonight, just ask Him for that. Lord, I want to have the power that I see in Peter's life. He was a mess, stumbling over himself and over his own tongue continually in the Gospels, and he becomes Superman in the book of Acts. And what happened to him? Only one thing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in his life, and it's there for the asking. So if the men would come forward and the worship team would come forward right now, we will partake of the Lord's Supper. And we